Welcome to Butter Living. I'm David Butterworth, and this is a podcast about health and about getting back to our playful roots. We hope that today's show is somehow inspired by the words of Bertrand Russell, who once commented, do not fear to be eccentric in opinion, for every opinion now accepted was once eccentric. On today's show, we will be speaking with Georgie Dinkov, owner of Idea Labs and independent health researcher. We will be touching on a few different topics that are, we think, all interrelated. The first thing that we will ask is what really constitutes an ideal environment for a growing, thriving organism? The second thing we will touch on is progesterone and how progesterone use impacts brain development. The third thing we will talk about is simply vaccinations. Before introducing Georgie, I, I would just like to iterate to any listeners that we are not health advisors and that anything we talk about is simply meant to be fun and engaging dialogue. If you somehow get the itch to go out and experiment or invent something or otherwise explore, just please do not hold us responsible. Georgie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me again. Great to have you here. Hi to all the listeners too. Uh, tell us what you had for breakfast. Um, let's see. I there is a Pete's coffee shop which I think originated out of California. Yep. And they have these really great like ham and Swiss cheese, uh, ham and Swiss cheese sandwiches. Um, so they have them like on an old fashioned sourdough, sourdough bread. Um, that's what I had today, but typically I try to have eggs and orange juice and, uh, basically try to hit at least like 30 grams of protein. Um, and if I do protein, I try to get most of it out of, out of casein, um, because it's like the slow digesting protein that keeps you full for longer. Awesome. And, and of course my trusty, my trusty Pepsi with sugar, <laughs> which I, I gobble like water and actually instead of water <laughs> throughout the day. Beautiful. I got a, I got a tonic water on this end. Awesome. We talked about tonic last time, right? Quinine. That's with right. All these benefits. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I got some Mexican Cokes in the fridge for later. That's right. Good. All right. So Georgie, I, I want to direct listeners to our last conversation. If they want to hear more about your background, I think you did a really good job of, of, of going deeply into kind of how, just how you know so much and why you're a good person to listen to. Uh, today, I, I just want to ask, what compels you to do what you do? Um, I don't think, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something external. It's like, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, it's not a goal and it's not, some, it's not like a plan that I made. It's not a business plan, even though I do have a business related to the supplements. Uh, but I run that business in a very unbusinesslike way, which you may have noticed. Um, basically, it started as a hobby, and I try to continue running it as a hobby. Um, and it sometimes clashes with like normal business logic. For example, the, uh, my friends that have their own businesses, they, they are appalled that I don't advertise. They say, well, how can you not advertise? I said, well, there's no point, right? I mean, to me, business is rather simple. If you sell something that people want, yeah. They should they should be coming and knocking on your door and asking about it, not you telling them to buy it 
and then coming up with all kinds of incentives, you know, to kind of like trick them into buying. Sure. And they said, well, will, you, will your sales will suffer? I'm like, well, I don't care if they suffer. I want them to be at their natural level, at the level at which people will keep coming that, that you know, will keep coming on their own. And, and you guys are not taking into account all the money that I'm saving that I'm not spending on marketing that you guys are. And by the way, it's, it's next to impossible to calculate return on investment or marketing. So it's like you people don't even know whether the money you threw at marketing actually materialized into anything. Maybe these people would have bought the exact same stuff without the marketing, right? But it's, it's, it's really like it's a sacrilege to bring up the topic in business world. So you, sure. you have to spend on marketing. You have to spend on sales. You have to, you have to, you have to engineer demand. They call it engineering demand. And uh, I, I'm just not cut out that way. I don't, I don't like doing this. Um, you know, I, you know, as a person who's worked in the private industry and the government, I, I, I've seen marketing and, and sales all around me. I thought that it's one of the worst aspects of of the of the of the of the private business, and not just the private business. The government does it as well. Yeah. I just I just thought it's that at this point, you know, it's becoming a very um, um, what should I call it? Very a perverse system mm-hmm. that preys on on people's basically um, pre- people's instincts and fears uh, and insecurities, and and it's just it's just a way of of getting them to part with their dollar, right? And it not necessarily sell them something that they really need. So, um, you know, but if you look at the, the whole theory of bioenergetics and good metabolism, it basically, uh, it's, it's the antithesis of that. It says, this is horrible, you know. You should be doing what naturally comes to you as desirable. And yeah. we're going to get into desire later why this is important. Yeah. And you should do things that you like, preferably, right? Um, and, of course, if you say this to a grown-up, they will, you know, throw their hands up in the air and say, Oh my God, this is impossible. How are we going to have a society when everybody does what they want? This is just what kids do. And my response to that is, well, if you believe in science, there is a ton of research which shows that uh, perhaps a good reason of why we're in the current situation where so many people suffer from mental illness, from vital exhaustion, from relationship problems, from you know problems in their families with their children and what and whatnot, and their relatives, um, and at the workplace. One of the reasons is one of the main reasons is probably the fact that most people do what they don't want to do on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, a little bit of that is probably necessary because let's face it, nobody wants to do chores. But you know, in order to keep your house in a habitable condition, you know, uh, you know, uh, not overrun by pests and you know, and and flies and 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 insects and whatnot, you have to do a little bit of cleaning, right? Yeah. Uh, same, same thing goes for food. You know, if you if you want to eat. You may have to do a little bit of cooking, yeah. but it, you know if you look at these basic necessities that that kind of require a little bit of labor that many people don't like, they actually they don't consume that much of our time. Yeah, uh, most of our time is consumed uh, by number one um, work, right? Because it's like it used to be eight hours a day, but at this point, most people who work a job they actually eight hours would be lucky if you work eight hours a day. You're most likely working around ten, and then most people commute to their work. So yeah. you throw it on average another, let's say, an hour and 45 minutes. Let's say two hours. So that's basically 12 hours a day. That's half of the day is basically taken up by doing things that, you know, that you don't necessarily like. And, you know, of course, somebody will counter and say, no, so many people like their job. And then I'm saying, well, then why is such a, why is the issue of workplace depression, of people getting disengaged, committing suicides, you know, leaving jobs after only three months of the job, all of these things strongly indicate that that's not the case, that most yeah. people actually don't like what they do. 
and they're doing it only for the money or because something else is forcing them. Um, and, you know, if you continue this conversation, eventually a grown-up will tell you, well, that's how the world works. That's, that's how it is for adults. And, you know, that may be currently so. I don't think this should be that way. But if you care about results, which is what the business world claims to be, uh, uh, you know, caring about, yeah. then this is like the exact opposite of what we should be doing. You know, that, that research I mentioned initially uh, at the beginning shows that if you actually give people a little bit of spare time, and it doesn't have to be those 12 hours yeah. of doing chores, so you, you don't have to give it all away. Just ask the business to actually give people like, let's say, 20 hours. I'm sorry, 20, uh, the 20% rule, which yep. is Google had famously implemented. It started from a company called 3M. Uh, now, you know, in both companies, it started as a fairly benign and really, really good-natured, uh, good, with, with a good intention rule. And what, what the rule was is every Friday, people get to work on whatever projects they want. There's yeah. no manager to tell them what to do. There's no schedule. There's nothing to report, really, except, you know, what, what are you working on? That's yeah. basically it, right? And it's, it was like, a, you know, once a month, you report to your manager, you know, hey, you know, these four Fridays, I worked on such and such and such things. Uh, now... Unfortunately, both companies managed to quickly turn this into a very perverse activity because they realized that the, the 20% rule generated 80% of the new products yeah. that both 3M and Google have currently. Uh, and actually, Google for Google, it's even a higher percentage. They stopped publishing them because they, they started becoming embarrassed because it, it implies that what people do 80% of the time is actually complete waste or at the very least is not generating revenues not generating profit so what google did is they still have the 20 percent rule but uh now it's it's basically it's much more controlled a manager is fully involved your manager in what you're doing they have a they have a project plan they have a schedule they have, they have resources assigned so it basically they turn it into yeah. more or less you know the same the re, the same as the rest 80 percent so it just so happened coincidentally and you know i don't believe in coincidences that just around the time that Google killed the 20% rule effectively, that I mean, they turned it into a chore, uh, yeah. essentially, they also got rid of its famous slogan, don't be evil. So now they replaced the don't be evil with the slogan, do the right thing. Um, and, 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 you know, around the time they got rid of the 20% rule, the vast majority of their original employees that were still with the company, they were, you know, still generating some of the best and brightest ideas, mm -hmm. left like in troves, they basically picked up and left. They realized that Google is no longer a company that allows that 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 leisure time, that time to do what you desire, um, and it's going to be essentially a chore. No, you know, no matter no matter how well you pay, no matter how much vacation you get, no matter how well you're taken care of financially, at the end of the day, you're still being told 24/7 what to do. And and many of those people that were with Google for a long time. Many of them are also entrepreneur in spirit, very, very libertarian. They, they realized intuitively that there is some, there is some deep in, intrinsic value in the ability to do what you want, at least part with part of your time. So they left. Um, yeah. And which brings me back to the evidence, which shows that what we call leisure, what we call play, what we call fooling around, they're actually extremely serious activities. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, children learn languages and most of about how this world works simply by observing and, and being left to do what they want. Nobody sits down and explains the grammar to a, to a two-year-old. I mean, they do later, right? They do when, when the school is supposed to start. But as far as learning the language and how to use it, the child learns entirely by observing 
um, and, 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 and by experimenting, by, by essentially interacting with the parents. Um, and yeah, you, just, you just included one of the studies that I posted recently, but that's what the study really shows, is that the, the ability to, um, to experiment with novelty, uh, the freedom to be exposed to new situations, situations that you haven't seen before, um, the freedom to choose how to handle them, um, you know, at, at, at the schedule that you want with the resources that you have um, is really crucial. There's nothing playful about it. It's, it's basically how the world works. And, and somehow we as a society have taken this and turned it on its head. And now with, what happens is essentially after you turn 18 or after you enter the work world, yeah. you will enter a cubicle or, you know, or, or a corporation or, uh, or an entity whose sole goal is to squeeze out of you as much profit as possible why paying you as little as possible. And I know that's a very cynical way of looking at it, but I challenge any of your listeners to tell me how many of them work in a company that allows them to, to spend, let's say, even two hours a week to do what they want. How yeah. many work in, in such an environment? I don't know of any person like that. I mean, they may do it secretly, right? They may do their work more quickly without telling their boss, and then they may spend a few hours working on things that they're really interested in to them, but I guarantee you the vast majority of them are not telling their bosses because if they think this is a good idea, they're going to keep it to themselves because they, they, they know what the company will do. Many, many, if not most of these people are, are working on based on non-competes and non-disclosure agreements. Anything they invent, even if it's after work hours, by law belongs to the company. Um, California doesn't recognize non-competes, which is great. Uh, I think it's great. And uh, neither does the District of Columbia. But the vast majority of the other... 50 states do recognize the non-competes. So essentially people are cautious and even if they, so they don't get free time, but if they manage to squeeze out some free time by, by the virtue of their ingenuity, yeah. they don't really share that free time and what they do with it with anybody else, probably not even their families. And, and I think that's tragic because um, the vast majority of creativity as was shown by the experiments in 3M and Google comes from those from that leisure time. That's how novelty happens. Novelty is not programmable. Uh, creativity is not programmable. Um, the ability to, 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 to handle new situations and to come up with products and continuously surprise your clients, that's not programmable, unfortunately. To, to the much to the chagrin of uh, business leaders, this is not something that can be automated, and in all likelihood, it's not something that a system, that an artificial intelligence system will ever be able to do. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that artificial intelligence systems are formal systems, like any computer, and they operate by a very strict set of rules. You can just random this if you want, but there is a famous theorem in physics, which says that, in cosmology actually, which says that no combination of determinism and rules can create knowledge, new knowledge. Yet somehow humans can, but computers cannot, because computers are nothing more than a combination of determinism and randomness and currently mostly determinism. So we, so this whole hope of somehow AI replacing creativity, the human process, in my opinion, will never materialize. So we're back to humans. So we have to do something to allow humans to have more leisure and more playtime. And, and we probably have to change the words too because they have really bad connotation. It's, it's what you call deadbeats, right? You know, you talk to any business leader and say, hey, uh, I want to spend my Friday playing, I don't know, baseball. I mean, you will likely be laughed out of the room and, and declared a lazy bum uh, or a demoralizing agent or, or, you know, a sabotaging agent, you name it. But I don't think any business leader will, will look upon this lightly. And, 
you know, even if they embrace it, they'll quickly turn it into some kind of a corporate event. Um, and it will not definitely not be a free event to do with your time as you please. Sure. And, and this is just, it's perfect. You're, 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 you're kind of take us in the direction of this. How can we be more playful? How can we find more leisure time? And it's just perfect for this, uh, first topic of the ideal environment for, for, uh, human development. And, and, and it's just, so, so I, I, I I posted that study here, leisure and desire required for intelligence. I'm going to, um, put the next one up you just posted this one recently yeah playfulness novelty and leisure are vital for progress and true knowledge it's 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 yep. more to piggyback what what you're talking about yep but this, this second one is really more extensive the first one was more philosophical because he talked about various philosophers and scientists throughout history noticing how, how important leisure time was for 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 the scientific discovery process because the vast majority of great scientists and the vast majority of greatest discoveries that we know about were done by these people actually not doing the work that, that's related to that, um, not being engaged actively. Uh, they were either walking or taking a vacation or drinking with friends or playing their musical instrument, but their, their mind was not consciously engaged with the task that they were supposed to solve, with the problem they were supposed to solve, which is the exact opposite of what's being promoted at any workplace environment these days that you have to stay focused on the goal stay focused on the goal well they the, so the first essay essentially the first study said well look if if history is any guide i mean if, if you take einstein if you take max planck if you take maxwell uh, if you take niels bohr if you take all of these great scientists all of them came up with their discoveries if you take mendeleev mendeleev saw basically the the periodic table in his dream so all of these people had, uh, you know, they kind of stumbled upon their discovery. It wasn't a, 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 a you know, pragmatic, you know, step-by-step process. Yeah, it was actually very rapid, very instantaneous. And it happened, you know, of course, there was a lot of work that went into preparing for that. But the actual discovery happened almost like on its own and always in an informal, playful slash leisurely environment. Um, so that article basically made the point of, well, maybe it's a very important thing to uh, for humans. And the second article, which you uh, which you opened, actually uh, does more of a comparison with nature, and it it observes how in, in you know list, list at least eleven different animal uh, uh, kinds, animal species, where they first of all they observe that the youngsters always play, and that if you interfere with this process of playfulness, then the young grow up into a, a fairly dysregulated. Um, um, unhealthy animals. Um, you know, if it's a, if it's a social animal, if it's a pack animal, and you interfere with the play process, these animals basically grow up to be very antisocial, aggressive. Um, they can't integrate in the community. Their health suffers. They st- basically the other animals turn against them. They start bullying them. Um, and then if it's a more of a solitary animal, then they really have a very poor time surviving in nature. I think one of the examples was predatory animals like uh, leopards and tigers. Who are, who are solitary, who are almost exclusively solitary. They only get together to mate once a year, but after that they split up and they're, they're alone like part of their lives. So if you interfere with the playfulness and the, the ability to, of these young animals to play, of the cubs to play, then they grow up to be really poor predators. Uh, they, they can't hunt properly. They don't know what to do with their food when they, even when they catch it. Um, they can't protect themselves from threats both from other animals and from hunters slash poachers. Um, they tend to have accidents more often in nature. 
And, you know, a wild animal having an accident in nature, it's usually a death sentence, especially if it's like a more serious injury. So on and on and on it goes to the point where um, the article makes the claim uh, that basically if play is present in every single animal kind that we've investigated, then maybe play is, is so important that, that evolution incorporated it. So all, all, human, uh, all organisms, essentially, not humans, all living organisms incorporate play as part of their development and it's a really unfortunate, unfortunate, uh, coincidence, not coincidence, it's an unfortunate uh, state of linguistics that we're calling it play, or at least it acquired the connotation of being a, you know, the semi-serious uh, activity uh, of which usually nothing good comes out of, right? They say that we even have an expression, uh, the idle hands or the devil's playground, right? Um, yeah. This is like, this is big part of not only the Puritan ethic. I mean, I, I come from a former communist country, um, working for work's sake, was actually a big motto in, in communist countries as well. You had to work. You know, being uh, if you don't work, you know, not only your social parasite because you know in the in a in a communist slash socialist system the goods are distributed more or less evenly, except for the very top, which yeah. I guess they exist in every country. But also, it was just, there was just this this uh, social stigma of not doing a produ productive labor. You know, the question your neighbors could report you to the police as a social parasite because. Or even if you're not parasitic, if you if you do generate something, you'll still probably get shunned socially and and ostracized and criticized, and and most likely your career prospects and your social standing will be hurt just by the fact that you will be perceived as a person who likes to waste time, who doesn't like to do productive work. Um, and uh, you know, um, this study says that's nonsense. This yeah. is actually the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Um, and, and, and the ideal environment that we should be aiming to create for ourselves is actually right in front of us. That's what our yeah. kids, at least, at least they used to be like that. And now yeah. we're interfering with their environment as well, unfortunately. Um, and this has to stop because the results of what we've seen from inducing forcefully structured activity, right? Um, you know, two-year-olds being sent to learn to play the violin or like a three-year-old being sent to take like fencing lessons or yeah. four-year-old being, you know, signed up to do like, to become like a world-class ballerina. All of these things are, you know, how, some of them are stemming from the sick ambitions of their parents who probably wanted to do these things themselves but couldn't, and how they project on the children. But a lot of, a lot of this is, is, is also social as well. A lot of the, a lot of the parents mean, mean well, they're just trying to prepare their children for an extremely competitive environment where if these children do not excel from very early age, the parents are afraid that the children will simply not fit. They will be losers for life. Yeah. And this article is arguing that it's the exact opposite. That most likely if you're, if you're, you know, somebody interferes with your ability to play from very early age, you will grow up to be a, uh, a very uh, maladjusted individual who, who will probably have a number of psychiatric conditions as an adult um, and various other diseases and ultimately fail um, as a legacy and as, as, as gross result as, as, as gross results, no matter what career path these people choose. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen like the, the, there's been a lot of suicide recently in the celebrity world, um, uh, both among actors, but also a lot of musicians, um, you know, a lot of sports people. Um, all of this is, is probably not a coincidence. All of these people have been pushed to the, to, the, to the very edge from very young age. And they basically never had the time to be children, which turns out to be 
absolutely crucial for you being able to be a normal adult. So, um, so Jordan, so that's so, what the study kind of said. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Now, so given that it, the opposite of that pushing, the opposite of that forcefulness, that regulated, you know, setting up environments for the kids that's 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 structured. Given that the opposite of that is play, and that play is literally instrumental to not just creativity, but the health of the organism. What are some real ways that a, a mom or dad or brother or sister or, or people can help craft that environment for, for their kids? I mean, um, other than just being totally unstructured, what are, what are some real ways they can help, help that along? Right. So, so telling people, hey, just leave kids alone, it's not very productive, right? They'll be like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Well, safety is important, right? Yeah. So you don't want your children to be running around with knives. Um, and also what's, what's also important is that you may be allowing your children to play, but there, there could be subconscious cues in the environment that, pre, that are preventing them from playing. Let's say you, you take the children to the local gym, which is, which is basically, uh, or a playground, an indoor playground, which is on the grounds of a high school, and basically, you have to currently high schools in, in most counties in the United States, they look almost like prisons. You have to you have to go through these like metal fences, then metal detectors, then like these locks. And I've seen how children literally seize up when you when you put in an environment like that. Anyway, are we going to the doctor? Am I gonna get an injection? And 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 even if you keep saying no, 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 you already see that the playful spirit is no longer there. The child is afraid that they're getting set up for something. So what can we do? I mean, in my experience, being outdoors is really is really instrumental because uh, nature, being being uh, outside, uh, you know, around nature is one of the few um, aspects of, of life that we haven't yet managed to completely mess up. Um, and it doesn't have to be. You don't have to go to the forest, right? I mean, you can go to like a like a baseball park, but simply being outside uh, it basically uh, infuses. Uh, the rhythm of life of you and the children that are around you with with a certain dose dose of unpredictability, uh, and I think that's that's what it comes down to. To us adults, we actually dread that. Many of us do, right? You want to control the environment. This is what every every business leader, every self instructor, uh, even police keep blasting this on the TV. You have to control the environment. You have to be aware of your environment. Well, to a degree, right? To to ensure safety, but. You know, if that's that's on your mind all the time, children are extremely picking up on how you are feeling about this whole event, and they're actually starting to mimic that. Um, there's a there's a book, and I, I've noticed this in my children, but from uh, unrelated. So so many parents and educators like to think that when when kids are going to school or pre-K or kindergarten, they listen to what the teachers tell them, and they take these instructions and they internalize them. And then they may, this becomes, you know, part of their internal guidebook. That's not how things work. Children do two things. Number one, they, they do listen to these rules, but that then they observe and look around them and they see if the adults themselves play by those rules. And if they don't, then automatically in the children's mind, this guidebook is automatically crap. I mean, they, they know that they're going to get yelled at or punished if they don't follow it. Yeah. So, yes, they do respond to fear. But that's not going to be their primary method. Their spontaneous answer in life will not be according to the guidebook, but according to what they see other people do. And that is really the natural state of every organism. You learn by experiment. You don't learn by instruction. It's, it's Some learning by instruction is necessary. Um, actually, it's not, it doesn't have to be by instruction, by, let's say, reading, which is a form of instruction, but it's passive. Nobody's there to tell you, 
uh, you know, this this white is not white, it's gray, right? They're not ordering you around, but it's still a form of instruction. It's other people's experience that you're reading about. So some of that is necessary, but in general, children and people learn true knowledge only comes streaming from the outside in, not from a book, not from your coach or your parent or your relative or your friend yelling at you and saying, if you listen to me, your life will get so much better. That's that's just not how how, this, how, how life plays out to be. Um, everybody's unique and everybody has a unique perspective on the world. And the best you can do as a parent is um, give your children any environment that allows for, for unpredictability in a, a safe manner as possible, right? Uh, obviously, going on hikes is great. Obviously, going surfing is great. You know, going to the beach, going to the museum, going to places... But in general, if you want your children to be free and be able to live their childhood properly, the, the fewer adults around them, the better. In other words, don't take them to these massive gatherings, such as sports events, where they basically see the highly hierarchical structure of the adult world. I mean, that's what sport events really are. It's two teams. You have, a, you know, you have these MVPs, these really like people that are really good at the sport that they play. Um, and then you know, the one team crushes the other. Parents cheer, and then that's what children internalize. They basically start thinking that it's a doggy dog situation, and that's really stifling for learning. Learning is about nobody has the complete truth. Everybody probably has a little bit of the truth. So learning really should be every person that you meet, every situation that you meet, you extract something from it, and you decide what part to internalize and what part to discard. While the, currently the process is the exact opposite. You get told whether explicitly or implicitly through rules in your environment and various threats that we don't even notice anymore, right? So you, you always stop on a red light because it's it, there's no policeman there to, I mean, sometimes there is, but in general, this is already like a conditioned reflex, right? And the, the fewer of these conditioned reflexes we have uh, that we instill into children, the more, uh, the more, the more open-minded they will be. And as the study clearly showed, Multiple studies have demonstrated that this is highly correlated with their IQ score, right? They will actually be physically much more intelligent. And what's even more important, they will, they will be able to maintain this open-mindedness and intellectual flexibility throughout the entire adult life, which means they will never stop developing, which is really the gist of the human existence. Because if you, if you think that you've learned everything there is to know about this world at 20, then what are you doing the other 40, 50, 60 years on this planet, you know? And, and actually, the reason I'm asking this question is rhetorical. Many people these days have found themselves in this situation, and that's one one of the big reasons behind the the, the like the massive spike in suicide rates that we're seeing. Um, there is a uh, I'm sure you read the social media site Reddit. Um, mm-hmm. Every once in a while, they'll have like a psychologist there who deals with suicidal people, and and the question will always come up is like, well, why are these people in their 20s committing suicide? And, and the answer invariably is, aside from these people experiencing some trauma that damaged them, for many times the answer simply was, they feel like there's nothing left to learn in this world and everything that they'll see from now on will always be bad. It will be a terrible experience and that we're not heading in a good direction and their life will basically be crap. You know, that they've reached peak at 20 and from now on, we'll not only will only get worse, but nothing, nothing new will happen. That's like that's the worst part, right? If the if life continues to get worse, but it's new and stimulating, that's that's actually some people were actually were okay with that. And 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 paradoxically, uh, one psychologist said that some people actually went back and, and and reconnected with their abusers 
who were the reason these people were suicidal, because life without the abuser was dull. And these people chose to uh, uh, basically to return to the to the trauma and the pain uh, that well, they tried. I mean, many of them were blocked, but they tried simply because uh, and actually that's probably one of the reasons they were, you know, with that abuser for, you know, to start with for such a long time. You know, that person was providing something that the environment was lacking. And that something seems to be the excitement, the novelty, even though it's provided in a very perverse way. So that's what we've gotten ourselves into. And, uh, you know, um, the way to change it is really uh, mimicking what children do and trying to maintain that for as long as possible in our adult lives. Wow. I love that. Can you, Georgie, can you walk, can you give us a few more details on what a, an ideal home environment looks like, like all over the place? And, and I'm talking, you know, play, playful, but also safety, because there are a few kind of environmental factors that kind of, I think, make a, a home more capable of uh, being bioenergetically thriving. Um, right. So can you can you give us some details on like a home environment? I'm talking like tap water versus filtered water and EMF considerations and just right. a, just a few nuggets that people might be able to take away as far as setting up a home environment that's just really supportive to to the organism. Right. So uh, first of all, in terms of in terms of geographical positioning, um, uh, you probably don't want to be at a too high of a latitude. Uh, sunshine is extremely important for health and for development and for creativity and intelligence. And there's a very good correlation of declining intelligence and increasing latitude. So, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, as stereotypical as it may sound, people who live in the Arctic Circle uh, tend to have an IQ score of about 20 points lower than the people who live closer to the tropics or even the equator. Um, so, so sunshine is extremely important. Uh, second of all, it's important to for the house or for the home. So townhomes have been shown to actually... Um, um, depending on your neighbors, you know, if you live in a really cramped neighborhood, living in a time in a, in a townhome is actually not very good because um, there's too many people around you. There's something called a Dunbar number, uh, and it's, it's that number is 150. And it's been shown that the optimal number of relationships uh, an or, a human can maintain is around 150. Anything more than that. Our, our brain starts to basically interpret these people as threat. You simply, these are people around you that are strangers and they're around you all the time. And because we're so, such social creatures, such social animals, we want to interact with all these people, but there's simply, you can't interact with, let's say a thousand people. So if you have a thousand friends on Facebook, I have news for you. They're not, <laughs> no more than 150 of these are your friends. And, and then also within that circle of 150, I think they vary by a factor of three. So if you take that 150 and divide it by three, you get 50. So 50 people are the people with whom you, in, you interact at least once on an annual basis. And then you divide it by another three, and then becomes your close circle of friends. And then you divide it by another three, and that becomes your immediate family. So, so it's like five people anyway, in, that, in that last. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, five people. Five people is really is really your core. Um, so what I'm trying to get is that you don't be living in an area that's too populated. Um, I mean, it just gets to a point where where you you start living your your fight or flight reflex is always activated if you're in an extremely overcrowded environment. So if you live in New York City, guess what? You will not be able to relax. And it has been shown that citizens that the long-term residents of of New York City have chronically elevated baseline cortisol. Um, you know, many people argue, well, it's because their lifestyle is crazy. No, some of them live pretty pretty uh, convenient, pretty, 
um, uh, wealthy lifestyle. They don't do much. All they do is sit home and read or, you know, go and play baseball and whatnot. They still have an elevated baseline cortisol. And my explanation is that they're simply uh, constantly surrounded by, by a large number of people that they don't know. Um, so that number number plays a role. You want to be surrounded by people who your, 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 your organism, your consciousness does not interpret as a threat. So also you, you want the home to be in an area that's not very close to these long distance power lines. Um, that are transferring electricity across states. Um, those tend to generate electromagnetic fields that can span over a mile. Um, and, and you know, a mile is, you know, probably is like a, a mile, a dist- distance of a mile is ideal, but anything closer than half a mile, you, you're probably already pushing it. Um, and, and I know, you know, uh, there, there is a habit of many developers to build like these enclaves of townhomes close to the power lines, simply because getting the electricity was so much cheaper. Um, so you don't want that. And also, um, you don't want to be, you don't want the, the home to be next to one of these, uh, you can tell. So you don't want, uh, at this point, the cellular phone antennas are starting to get attached to like, to uh, to uh, street lights and, and these, you know, these these utility poles. So you can tell basically the, the they look like these big, um, either rectangular or, or pentagonal, um, three-dimensional objects, they're directional antennas, so you don't want your house to be anything less than 100 feet from, from, from these. And ideally, you don't want your house to be sitting in such a way that antenna is basically one of the one of the faces of the antenna is facing your house, because that's what this, this antenna does. It beams a signal, and the antenna is powerful enough to actually um, reach, I think, you know, up to half a mile, depending on the technology, and essentially saturate your house with this electromagnetic radiation. So, so placement of the home matters a lot. So avoiding EMF is important, as I said. Um, of course, if you live next to a river, um, if the house is next to a river or any kind of a, a water basin, it's probably not a bad idea to take like a sample of the water and, and, and have it sent for analysis. There are labs that will do like a very basic toxicological analysis for $100. And I think that's a worthy investment if you're considering buying a house considering you will be there for a while and your loved ones will be there too. Um, and then after that, um, you want you want to make sure that the house is does not contain asbestos because that was a material that was used. It was banned apparently, supposedly in the 70s, but apparently its usage continues to this day uh, in violation of many protocols. But there's a way to easily test for it if you ask a, a developer that's not associated with the house. Of course, you have to pay a small fee. They'll actually come with a device which measures particles in the air that can only come from asbestos. And they can tell you for sure if your house contains any material that has asbestos in it or not, regardless of whether the, like the paperwork on the house says that or not. Because just like with the foods, if the amount of asbestos is beyond a certain amount, beyond a certain level, many states do not require this to be, to be disclosed. And of course, guess what? Developers will not disclose it because they know that people are afraid of asbestos and because of its carcinogenicity. So you can test for that, and you can test for some basic radioactivity like the, the gases radon and xenon. Um, they tend to be present in, so, in, in the soil in, in some parts of the United States. So if the house has a basement, you can just buy like a very basic, uh, you know, radioactive Geiger counter for about 50 bucks on Amazon. You know, walk around the basement and see if there's any, any like uh, residual radioactivity. And then aside from that, um, you want the house to be built with as few fire retardants as possible. 
Um, many houses these days are stuck to the brim, to the roof, and it, virtually every every piece of the house contains some kind of a fire retardant, like the beams, the wooden beams in the house on the roof. Many times they're actually soaked in the fire retardant, you know, to because if they ever catch fire, you know, they want to be like the basically the, the impetus is on the house not catching fire. And guess what? Most of the impetus behind this is not your health. It's simply the preservation of property. Yeah. It's not, they don't care that much about whether the residents survive or not. They do somewhat, but actually the bigger issue is the preservation of property uh, and the preservation of the property around your house. So if your house, if your house burns like a, you know, like a, like a candle, um, chances are it's the, the, the other houses around it will also catch fire. That's what yeah. they want to at all cost. It's yeah. the insurance risk, right? So, uh, but you can actually request in some states, you can check, you can ask the developer and they will, they're, they're required by law to list all the different types of um, flame retardants and where they are used the most. Now, the beams of the house are not that big of a problem because they're hidden behind walls or at the ceiling and the roof. But things like if you have a wooden floor, um, it's, 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 uh, it, it's better if you have it, if you have a wooden floor that's not soaked in a flame retardant. Now, if you have carpet, many states by, by law require a carpet to have at least one fire flame retardant. But, you know, some, some developers go overboard and soak it with five or ten different ones. Some of them are known carcinogens. So you, cannot, you can actually ask the developer to tell you what the carpet contains. And if it has these carcinogens, you can ask the developer to replace it. And in many, in many states, the law requires the developer to replace it for no, for no extra cost. So you can choose a carpet that even, the, even though it has flame retardants, it has the fewest number, uh, you know, uh, required by law. And at least has the carcinogenic, the directly carcinogenic ones removed. Um, things like green space, you know, basically shrubs. You want the house just as yours. You want trees. You want bushes. You want grass. You want you want plants around your house. Um, you know um, what else? Uh, I mentioned like water basin, like a river or a lake is really good. I I think river is preferable. It's been shown for some reason that people that live close to a river. They outlive ones that li that cl live close to an ocean or close to a lake. It's mm -hmm. not. It is not known why, but that is that. That's the statistic. Um, and then after you're inside the house, I think we already talked about. So tap water is important. Um, some states, uh, I think, some states actually to this day, some counties in the states, um, the water does not contain fluorine, but still contains some of the trace minerals that are thought to be responsible for some of the extreme longevity seen in some counties in the United States up until the 1950s. And it was thought that this longevity was due to the trace amounts of lithium and specific isotopes of magnesium present in the tap water. Mm. And these were removed by law starting in the 50s, but some counties uh, have now started to reintroduce that water because it's naturally present in the spring in the area where they're extracting it from. Um, so if that's the water you get, it's important, you know, that that's actually a good water. You don't want to have it replaced with the fluorinated, chlorinated tap water that, that most other people drink. Um, EMF inside the house. Um, now, at this point, Wi-Fi is, is really like a, is, is a utility. We, we can't live without it. But what I would try to do is make sure you're not getting the 5G because the 5G generation, which um, uh, basically will have, um, uh, you will use much higher frequencies. And, and now even the 4G has been shown to be carcinogenic if it's used too often. What's too often? Keeping your phone right next to your ear, not even touching it, right next to your ear about an inch away, keeping your phone there and exposing your head 
for 15 minutes daily. One five is enough. So this means if you're going to talk to people, either put the phone on loudspeaker or get an earpiece, uh, but not the not the wireless one, not the Bluetooth one that people stick in their ear and then they fry their brain with even higher uh, frequency radiation because the phone uses radiation in the megahertz usually, while the earpiece is usually Bluetooth and it uses five gigahertz frequency, which is much more damaging to the neurons, penetrates really well because you're putting in your ear too. So yeah. penetrates really well into your brain and, and all the tissues that are in, in your head, all the organs, your eyes, your inner ear, um, your sinuses. Um, so so if you're gonna if you're going to be using any kind of a wireless technology, make sure it's away from your vital organs and keep the usage short. Um, or if you have to use it for a prolonged period of time, like a, like a phone, for example, um, make sure you're using like a wired wired earpiece. Um, and then what about a laptop sitting on your lap? That should not be happening. So yeah. two reasons why. Uh, even the, if the even if the laptop doesn't have Wi-Fi enabled, it's still emitting electromagnetic frequency. I mean, any electrical device will emit an electromagnetic field, and that field will be pre will be present there even if your laptop is on battery, even if it's not plugged in. Just the fact that you have an electronic device running and the electrons streaming through its parts, that's already enough to generate an electric field. Second, if you keep it in your lap. Uh, for males, it's especially bad because it's been shown that if you keep your laptop on your lap for about 20 minutes, it will raise the temperature of your gonads by, by about three quarters of a degree. And that is enough to dramatically reduce for male fertility. So um, keep, keep that area well ventilated and keep it cool. Like you don't want to keep your laptop or anything else that will increase the temperature drastically in that area. It's really, it's really not good. And the same thing applies for, for female ovaries. They shouldn't be, shouldn't be put on the lower abdomen area because it, it does have, um, it's not as bad as in males, but it still has a, has a, it has a detrimental effect. So sitting so at a desk, yeah, sitting, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I think you're still talking about the computers. Yeah. Yeah, basically I said sitting at a desk, having the laptop at least a foot away from you, um, especially if the Wi-Fi is turned on, um, and, you know, taking regular breaks, taking a break every uh, 30 to 45 minutes and walking away is really important because the, the, the exposure to, to the dangers of Wi-Fi decreases with the square of the distance. So even moving like a foot away dramatically drops the, you know, the risk. So getting up from your chair and going to the kitchen to grab a drink for like a few minutes, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great relief. Even though it doesn't, doesn't look like much, you're still relatively close to your computer. In terms of exposure and safety, actually, it makes a huge difference. So I think a lot of people might be thinking, oh, uh, EMF is related to like our cell phone, our computer. But what about things like a, a electric hair curler or like a, a blow dryer or something? Like, can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, just as I mentioned, because I, that's specifically why I mentioned the laptop. I said, even if the laptop is not plugged in, even if the laptop is not having Wi-Fi enabled, it is an electric device. So as long as you have a device which has electrons flowing through it, whether from a whether the source is a battery or if it has been plugged into the wall, once it starts working, you there is a electromagnetic field which which propagates depending on the power of the device of the power output or the input actually propagates anywhere from like a few inches to like a few feet. So the electric the electric blow dryer and especially the electric shavers are really bad. Um, the cordless phones, the older cordless phones 
that are actually, you know, they have this, this long antenna. It's still a, still a land-based phone, but basically the base station is plugged into the wall, and you have this, like, the headset, right? And they have this really long antenna. I think they're, they're operated at 900 megahertz. For some reason, that frequency uh, uh, turned out to be really bad. Uh, I mean, the, this frequency, for some reason, seems to be directly carcinogenic, specifically for brain and ovarian tumors. So if you have one of these old phones, you know, it's probably better if you replace it with something else or, you know, don't use the headset. Just speak on the speaker directly. Um, but, you know, uh, toothbrushes, like the, this, the, these really popular toothbrushes now, they're really bad because you're actually sticking the toothbrush into your mouth. And then when it's in your mouth, it's actually very close to your brain. And that frequency of the toothbrush, uh, of the electromagnetic field generated by the toothbrush, has been shown to, to, to penetrate and affect the brain. And the official version is that because this is non-ionizing radiation, it is not dangerous for you because it's, you know, it, it cannot really cause any physical change. That turned out to be, and has been, actually has been known to be untrue, uh, at least since the 1950s, but um, the industry paid some people well to essentially, um, you know, downplay the risk. And only now we're getting organizations like the National Institute of Health, like the National Institutes of Standard and Technology, coming out with studies that say, look, we underestimated the risk of EMF. It's, it's really not benign at all. Um, so, so basically, the, even though the popular story is that EMF is not dangerous, actually EMF has direct negative effects on health, mostly by downregulating metabolism. There is a famous discussion on Reddit, which I can show you, send you the link to. Um, every once in a while, Reddit, the Reddit community does something called AMA, uh, which is Ask Me Anything. So they will invite an expert on a topic, and then that, that person will basically sit there and kind of have like a chat, chat discussion. And then the entire Reddit community will submit questions for voting. And then they'll ask the most, the most popular questions. They'll ask them to the expert. So maybe about a year and a half ago, maybe up to two years, the guest was the, the world's premier expert. Uh, you know, he didn't call himself that, but that's, what, that's how Reddit introduced him. He was apparently the most widely respected expert on EMF and the effects of EMF on living organisms. And he was, I think he was, uh, he's a professor at the University of Toronto. So the, basically the topic of the discussion was, um, uh, is there any truth to the claims that EMF is dangerous? And what can be done uh, to suppress these fraudulent claims? And you can, when you go and read the discussion, it's really kind of sad. I mean, most of the comments in the discussion, because the Reddit ranks them by popularity, mm -hmm. it, they weren't the answers of the person. There were comments by the person because that that expert because he kept saying it's it's not a it's not a conspiracy EMF is really dangerous all my work has shown that it causes a multitude of problems like with fertility immunosuppression etc 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 but he emphasized kept emphasizing repeatedly but above all it lowers metabolism and and the responses were vicious people kept attacking him saying. Well, that's a you know, big deal. Maybe we'll gain a little bit of weight. Like, uh, who cares if metabolism is slow? And he kept coming back with, and of course now we know that metabolism is really the orchestrator of everything. He kept, even he kept, kept coming back and saying, I wouldn't necessarily put it this way. There, we, there's so much we don't know about metabolism. Some of the longest living organisms in the world are very, uh, have very high metabolism. Metabolism declines with age, etc. So she basically, he kept trying to say, he kept trying to say that, um, no, actually, we have evidence that uh, metabolism is important. And even if that's not enough for you, I keep repeating that it causes cancer, heart disease, infertility, immunosuppression, 
and none of these things seemed to matter to that community. They just kept coming back and saying, um, no, this is, he didn't say this is fraud because he's very well established. They kept saying that his research was badly worded. It was taken out of context. Um, the analysis was statistically skewed, etc., etc. And at some point, he just gave up and he said, well, clearly, you're here to tell me what my research is all about, but you don't want to listen what I have to say about my research. And his summary was, my words to everybody who actually gets to read this thread is, stay away from EMF. Yeah. The frequency doesn't matter. Um, he, he said that as far as he's concerned, that there is no such thing as safe EMF, regardless of how low the frequency is. He said that, the, actually, he said pl plausibly, the only safe EMF are the so-called Schumann resonance frequencies, which are emitted by the Earth. And I think they're in the range of, of 20 to 60 hertz. So they're really low. Mm. Uh, and he said he's not even sure about them. But he said everything else, especially man-made, um, stay away from it because with, with prolonged exposure, it is anything but benign. So just be smart. I mean, there's some smart choices we can make to, to, to stay a, a little bit clear. Of, yeah, of and his, I think his, his basically his, uh, his rule, he said his, his thumb rule about new technology was, I will not use anything until it has been in mass use for at least 10 years, and there has been at least one class action lawsuit of people being harmed by it. Mm. He says that until then, we don't know anything about the technology because clearly the industry that's behind it has a vested interest not to tell you what the dangers are. So the only way we find out is by giving the technology enough time to be used by a sufficient number of people. So statistics kicks in, the law of large numbers. And then when somebody, inevitably, anything, at some point, somebody will get hurt by something, right? And then looking at those lawsuits and finding out what the claims are and examining the evidence and seeing basically how bad things are. That's the only way. Because anything else is probably paid for by the marketing arm of that industry and there's really no way of distinguishing truth from from marketing brochure. I mean, we know about ghostwriting uh, in regards to drugs. We know about uh, clinical trials. We know about corruption at FDA. So if these things can happen about drugs that can have a life and death effect, right, the difference between yeah. life and death, then, of course, this is much more likely to happen with a technology that most people deem benign, right? So the focus would be on ensuring that a drug doesn't kill a person, but if it's something about... Uh, uh, you know, an electromagnetic frequency that people use on a daily basis and are not yet dropping dead like flies, then the presumption will be it's all good. Until we have the evidence that it's bad, we're going to assume that it's not. Uh, and his, his his statement was, nope, that's a really bad way. It's a really bad rule of thumb to go about any new technology. His rule of thumb was, I wouldn't touch it if I, if, if I could avoid it. I would until it's been in widespread usage for at least 10 years and has been at least massive lawsuit against the industry because that's when the truth tends to come out it's it can still be suppressed but you start getting the dirty truth <laughs> the sure. dirty laundry is getting aired usually at, at the in the, at, at, at these trials at the you know at, at the court proceedings sure uh, let, let's let's bring this to one question about food and kids if you were going to frame a, a conversation or frame a message to kids about um, detrimental effects of polyunsaturated fat or, or other toxic food additives. How, how would you frame that to, to a kid? Because we talk about, I mean, I've heard you talk a, a lot about that, and I think other listeners have, but, but if you're going to frame that message to, uh, to a young person, uh, how would you do that? 
So I'll tell them that most of the processed food that arrives in a package usually contains at least one bad toxin that if you continue eating it on a regular basis, eventually it will either kill you or give you a really bad condition. Uh, the, the, and I'm speaking about food, right? So um, many times like you hear on TV that, oh, you have to eat more fruits and vegetables, all oh, the processed foods are bad, et cetera, et cetera. Now that, that's, that's a good, um, it's, a, it's a good context but it ignores the fact that natural food can also be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if I'm cooking with organic canola oil, which costs 10 times more, it's still pretty bad and the outcome is the same simply because it's mostly PUFA mm -hmm. compared to like regular canola oil, which would be much cheaper. And but it may contain, in addition to the PUFA, it may contain some pesticides, which are basically allowed to be in, in a non-organic food. Mm -hmm. um, so it will kill you just faster, right? It'll, yeah. be, it'll be just more toxic. So just because something is organic slash natural, that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. Um, typically, uh, and one thing that I want to bring the uh, bring up the the example of children, they seem to be remarkably cognizant of what good foods are. If you allow them a choice of food, they will typically go for very easily digestible, sweet, high calorie, like like nutrient dense foods. They they absolutely despise vegetables in any form or shape, even if you cook them. Even if you try to like, um, you know, sweeten them or spice them up or make them a little tastier with some kind of a dressing, they still despise them. And there is a good reason for that. Most of the vegetables, at least the parts that we eat, they weren't meant to be eaten by us. Uh, vegetables, just like any other creature, they have a preference for not being eaten. Um, and the only parts that they like to be eaten are things like, you know, the fruit, which contains the seeds, because that's how the seed gets spread. So, you know, if you're going to eat an apple, that's probably, that's fine. If you're going to eat like, a, a, you know, if you need some cherries or grapes or, or pears or oranges, that's all great. But let's say if you're going to eat asparagus, we're eating, you're eating the stalk of the asparagus, which is the actual plant. And that plant has absolutely no interest in being eaten because it does not benefit the species in any way. So the plant actually contains a number of different toxins. And the only animals that are adapted to, to process those toxins are the ruminant animals. They have a special stomach consisting of three separate cameras, uh, not cameras, but chambers. Um, and then each chamber has a different bacteria inside it. And each chamber has different enzymes. And these ruminant animals keep chewing their, their grass, their plants, and regurgitating and chewing and regurgitating and chewing. And they keep doing this for 12 to 14 hours just to be able, even for them, it is extremely difficult to take that plant mass and turn it into something useful while also be dead. We are nowhere near that level of sophistication. Our GI tract, our, our, our you know, food processing system, it's more akin to a carnivore. So we actually absorb rather well pretty much everything we eat. So all of the toxins that the plant developed to protect itself from pests like us, <laughs> from, from, so we're going to absorb these toxins. One of the biggest toxins is the PUFA. Most PUFA comes from plants. This is their natural fat. And PUFA is a great metabolic and digestive inhibitor. Um, and a number, it has a pro-inflammatory mediator. It's an endocrine disruptor. Uh, but aside from that, there are a number of different toxins in the plant that actually inhibit digestive enzymes. So what happens is that the plant is, is preventing you from even extracting whatever goodness may be inside. So all you do is you take this toxin and you chew it and you pass it through yourself, you absorb some of the toxins, you don't absorb almost nothing of the good part, and, and basically it really does you no good. 
So things like milk, like uh, orange juice, honey, um, you know, animal protein, uh, eggs, all of these things are things that children naturally crave and prefer as food for not, but and for a very good reason. All of these things were meant to be eaten. None of these things contain things that are meant to inhibit your digestion, mess up with your endocrine system, create inflammation, etc., etc. All of these things were meant to be eaten. So um, once again, um, being cognizant of what you eat, if it's something in a, that comes in a package and has more than five ingredients, chances are it contains toxins, whether natural or man-made. Even if it's natural, if it's a, if it is a, if if it is of plant origin and it does not consist of the roots of the plant or parts of the plant that were meant to be eaten, like the fruits, right? You know, a tomato. I mean, even the tomato, which is technically a fruit, should be cooked because the tomato is a nightshade plant and contains a lot of serotonin, contains a number of different tryptamine derivatives, which are also not good, metabolically speaking, for us. So even those things need to be cooked. But in general, if you're going to eat something, make sure it's the part that contains the seed. Don't eat the seeds. Because the seeds actually also contain toxins. Seeds don't want to be digested. Yeah. Seeds wants to pass through undigested. But at least the part that contains the seeds is less likely to hurt you because the plant created it with the intent of being ingested and distributed. What I, what I love is that it, it seems like you have given us just golden information. But you've also, because I asked you the question, how would you frame this to kids? And, and what I love is you didn't dumb anything down. You, you, told, you told me or listeners or, or like you're framing this to a child the same way you'd talk to anyone. And, and it, it reminded me of a Bertrand Russell um, quote that I pulled up. I want to read it. He said once, he said, when you want to teach children to think, you begin by treating them seriously when they are little. You give them responsibilities. You talk to them candidly. You provide them privacy and solitude. And you make them readers and thinkers of significant thoughts from the beginning Right. That's if you want to teach them to think. Right. And, and, and it just made me think of that because you're, you, you didn't dumb anything down. You gave it to us straight. And that's the same way we should talk to our children, I think, about things. Yeah. And, and I, I love that you brought up Burton Russell. And I think you should be forwarding his uh, treatise on uh, the importance of leisure. I think, yeah. or, yeah, because he, he really summarized it much better than I could just how important it is and, and how we as a society have gotten ourselves into this mad and bizarre behavior which is working all the time and there's really not only no need for that but it's actually at this point starting to work against us our own work is starting starting against us health wise and even productivity wise i love it so georgie uh we kind of gave ourselves an hour we're at that point uh in in the introduction which you didn't see i i, I told listeners we were going to talk about three topics we we're going to talk about this ideal environment for for uh a growing individual or human human you know development, uh, and and I said we we're going to talk about progesterone and impact on brain development, I, and I also said we we're going to touch on vaccines. So I okay. guess uh, I want to pose this to you. I, I might have a few more minutes if you do, um, but how, but how do you want to handle this? Um, and because because we could you know talk just for a few minutes about progesterone, and we could kind of introduce the vaccine issue or, or we could save it for another time. Well, I can, I can, I can do like five minutes of each. I think it will be a good summary for people to, to just, they'll have a gist of it. So progesterone is not only the hormone of pregnancy, progesterone is one of the fundamental protective factors in the, in the human organism for both sexes. Um, I think it's a speaks volumes uh, uh, about it's important. The fact that both men and women up until puberty, uh, they produce equal amounts of it. So, so, and it's been shown that uh, pretty conclusively at this point that what keeps children children, what makes children 
young and resilient and playful and open-minded and basically willing to interact with the world is largely progesterone. It's the high ratio of progesterone to cortisol and high ratio of progesterone to estrogen. And what kicks off puberty um, is, is basically the, a surge in estrogen. And many people think of estrogen as the, as the female hormone, but once again, both men and women produce it and it rises during stress. Yes, of course, it has a role in ovulation and fertility and whatnot, but in general, it's a stress hormone. And once puberty starts, puberty is actually a bad signal. And puberty is the signal, is something from the environment has signaled the organism that the organism has a specific amount of like life years. Mm-hmm. And then basically once the, the organism reaches the peak, then reproduction should start because the environment can only support this organism for this set amount of years. And if the organism wants to reproduce, then the organism should start reproducing. So conversely, it has been shown that people in whom, so in other words, the earlier your puberty starts, the less healthy you are, or and or the less the less uh, the less optimal the environment is for your health and for your life in general. So the environment is telling you start reproducing because we don't know how much time left we have. So it has been shown that in in, in multiple groups around the world, people that are living poor, um, you know, um, disease ridden, in general harsh environments, puberty starts very early, like in, in girls starts around the age of six, which is really, really early. Up until 50 years ago, average age of puberty was between 11 and 13. And now in some groups, it's down to six. These are these are children. These, these are preschool children that are already experiencing puberty. So that's a bad sign. Conversely, the, the later your puberty starts, uh, both in men and women, uh, the longer your lifespan. It has been shown that the later the puberty starts, then basically the longer you will live, regardless, you know, all-cause mortality will be much lower, and in general, you'll be a healthier person. So both health span and lifespan will be much longer. So progesterone is what delays puberty, and progesterone is also what delays menopause in women. So it shows that progesterone is a pro-life, pro-metabolic, pro-health factor. And and progesterone is a hormone that, again, um, if we remove the stigma that has been if we remove the stereotype that has been associated with as, as being a female hormone, progesterone should then start to be seen in the light of being a health, life-promoting nutrient that we cannot possibly get enough of. So if we can get a jar of progesterone and ingest a spoon every day, they'll be, they'll be great. Um, now, that's not, a, that's not what, what I'm suggesting, but it's just an indication that it's one of these nutrients that your organism will never tell you, I've had enough. If you keep giving, just like vitamin K, um, or sugar is another one. They all have very similar effects. Your organism will keep telling you, give me more. So progesterone is, is a, one of the fundamental protective factors. Red light is another one. Um, okay. so, so progesterone is something that both uh, people considering having kids, uh, women during pregnancy or after pregnancy uh, or between, in between pregnancies or people under stress, anybody can use a bit of extra progesterone. Um, and since we, the second topic with vaccines, it has been shown that people who have higher natural levels of progesterone or supplement with progesterone, they have dramatic, dramatically increased resistance to infectious disease, mm. both viral and bacterial, uh, which brings us to the point of natural immunity and what the vaccines are all about. Now, there is no... There's little doubt that some of the vaccines will have a protective effect, but the question that has never been answered is, has, there, has, has this effect ever been compared 
to a group that was not vaccinated and was exposed to the vaccine pathogen? In the vast majority of cases, the answer is no, simply because they, like the medical community claims this is unethical. You cannot have a group that does not get the vaccine because we assume the vaccine is good, so we have to have everybody take the vaccine. And one of the worst examples of vaccines in terms of never being proven, its benefit never being proven, is the flu vaccine. It has never had a single double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial which has a group of people getting the vaccine and a group of people not getting the vaccine. And since flu is one of the most benign diseases of all the ones that they vaccinate against, this should be probably the vaccine that that is the most uh, the, the mo- it's 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 the it is the most appropriate to construct a group that doesn't take the vaccine, right? There are many people who don't have the flu vaccine, but the powers that be refuse to do that. So now we're basically getting to a point where we're getting injected with all of these substances that do trigger an immune response, but usually they trigger in a bad way through, through an activation of a, of a toxic pathway, usually by activating the endotoxin receptor TLR4. And as we'll probably discuss in some, some of your other shows, this endotoxin receptor has now been implicated in virtually every chronic disease, uh, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, osteoporosis, infertility, uh, immune deficiencies, autoimmune conditions, almost all of them have uh, have evidence that they're due, at least in, in part, to the overactivation of this receptor. Uh, and that's what most of the vaccines do. They contain like a weakened form or a dead version of the pathogen, mm-hmm. but they also contain an adjuvant. And that adjuvant is, the role of this adjuvant is to activate this receptor TLR4. And the, the, the argument is that well, that's how we trigger an immune response. We, 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 we irritate your immune system, and because we also throw the pathogen at it, the immune system is now active. It sees the pathogen and basically starts to produce antibodies to it, and then that's how it's prepared. And the next time it gets this, the same pathogen, the, your immune system will, will, will be ready. However, it has been shown that people who basically are breastfed and their children of mothers who have sufficient numbers of progesterone they inherit the vast majority of the mother's immunity, mm. and they're remarkably resilient to these to, to the diseases that modern medicine vaccinates against. In fact, there are animal trials which show that that uh, progesterone or administering progesterone to a, to a group of animals can actually protect it better than a vaccine against a, against a number of, a number of viral diseases. Mm. But that's of course a topic that. You don't you don't hear about it. So I'm not a complete anti-vaxxer. My point is actually that vaccines are a very suboptimal, very archaic, very barbaric way of of basically ensuring mass scale immunity simply because it's the cheaper way to do so. Mm. And the government or the powers that be, they don't care about mine or your or anybody's health. They simply care about cost. So instead of supplying everybody with progesterone, instead of improving everybody's water supply, food supply, uh, making sure we're not exposed to EMF, which is a great immunosuppressant itself, instead of doing all of these things that will basically ensure that we never get an infectious disease or the rates are extremely low, we're basically getting the lemon version. (laughs) If you go to the mechanic, you ask for a Porsche and you basically get uh, get a Geo. And, and basically, yes, it will get you from point A to point B, but, um, you know, the, you'll probably pay more than this thing is worth it. 
and you, you, you're probably not going to get told a lot about the risk of this thing breaking down in the middle of the road and, and leaving you, you know, sitting on your butt and basically without any protection whatsoever. And I haven't even discussed the side effects because uh, many people don't know that there's a special commission. There's a government agency which has been set up and it's called the Commission uh, for the Compensation of Adverse Reactions to Vaccines. So after the vaccine, do you know about that? I didn't know. I haven't heard about oh. that. So because the vaccines were considered so controversial when they were rolled out, the, the pharma companies approached the federal government and said, we want you to pass a law which exempts us from being liable of, of any side effects that the vaccines may cause. And the government said, okay. So they passed, Congress passed a law, and I'll send it to you, yeah. and they set up an agency, and that agency basically has something, the equivalent of a family court. It's separate from the, from the other court system. So if anybody gets injured by a vaccine, you cannot sue the pharmaceutical company. The law prohibits you. So what you do is you submit a claim for reimbursement, and it goes for review into that, you know, our, uh, really secretive uh, court system that is part of this of this agency. And basically, you get compensated from a fund, which gets funded partially uh, from the pharmaceutical companies, but but they, they've been starting to pay less and less. And at this point, it's almost entirely funded by taxpayers' money. So yeah. you're prevented from suing for damages and the, 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 the compensation that you may get, even if, God forbid, somebody in your family dies from the reaction of a vaccine, the compensation is capped by law. And I think it's something on the uh, on uh, the amount is something ludicrous. Um, I think the, the, the maximum you can get is like $50,000, which clearly in a, in a, in a case of long term disability or death, that's that's not nearly that's that's a that's a slap in the face. I mean, that person's life is ruined or, you know, this person's dead and that's all the relatives get. So, yeah, but yes, so, that, so if 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 the if the vaccines were so safe and effective, why would the pharmaceutical companies petition the government for this thing to be created? Keep in mind, it only exists for vaccines. You know, if this if this existed for all the drugs that the pharma companies did, then I would say, okay, maybe fair enough. But um, pharma companies don't want to get sued. Any any drug can cause side effects, right? So they just want to be protected, and the government is trying to protect them. It may be, you know, it, it may be bad. It may seem like a corruption. But if you, if it applied to all medicines, at least it will be consistent. It will make sense. But this is only about the vaccines, which suggests that there's something about those vaccines that is so risky that the that the, the, the drug companies do not trust even the biased court system that we have. So they actually went to the federal government and said, protect us if you want us to produce these vaccines. And that's what happened. Compelling. Yeah. My gosh. Okay. Well, okay. So, so if you have these... a good diet. If you have a good diet, if you have progesterone, if you take care of your health, chances are that the children you have will have decent immunity and they will probably not need to be immunized and to, to create a uh, suboptimal immunity uh, at the cost of tremendously high risk of side effects yeah. and chronic disease down the road. So if, if someone, I mean, it's, 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 it's captivating, it's compelling, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, if, if someone hears that and still wants to drive the geo. They they still want to go through with getting vaccinations, which is which is a choice, and they can. What are what are maybe maybe spend just thirty seconds and we'll wrap this up. Uh, what are some ways to mitigate some of the potential um, kind of deleterious effects of of these adjuvants and these vaccines? So, keeping metabolism high is of paramount importance. 
Um, any toxin that it gets introduced into, into the organism, uh, we usually have uh, a way of getting rid of it um, as long as metabolism is high. I posted a study on this not long ago which showed that even the most potent endocrine disruptors easily get destroyed and excreted if you produce enough reactive oxygen species. And those reactive oxygen species are products of high metabolism, of, of properly functioning mitochondria. So things like aspirin, thyroid, uh, progesterone, DHEA, uh, these are all things that are metal in blue. These are all things that are that really uh, conducive to maintaining high metabolism um, and basically protecting you from the side effects, both of the pathogen that you get injected with and the, and the adjuvants. And it's probably not a bad idea to take this about an hour before you get vaccinated and then, you know, an hour after you get the vaccine and then keep taking it for, for about a week after the vaccine event and repeat that cycle for every vaccine exposure that you get. Are you talking you know, for kids? That will be for, my regimen. Are you talking for kids? So for kids, so for adults, you can, for adults, any of these will be fine. I think most doctors would bulk it giving progesterone to children, mm -hmm. but I don't think they'll have a problem giving aspirin to children um, or, or, like, or, or even methylene blue. Um, so, so these are more benign things that, that the doctor should have a problem with. So a tablet of, asp of aspirin or a drop of methylene blue for a child shouldn't be much of a difference. They actually, both of these are approved for usage in children as long as the child is older than two. Um, so that, that thing the I- The child I, is not older than two. I've heard, I've heard people talk about Ray's syndrome. Is that a kind of an unjust yeah. or un unbased uh, fear? Which one? Uh, is it Ray's syndrome? Is that what it's called? Is that, is that kind yeah, of like- the, a, the Ray's syndrome was, was unfortunately blamed on aspirin, but later it's found out that drugs like Tylenol and so sodium naproxen and ibuprofen actually had a much higher chance of triggering Ray's syndrome. So now the calls, calls are being made uh, to actually remove the warning, remove the word aspirin from the warning right. and just say anti-inflammatory drugs. So, uh, and besides, in order to trigger Ray's syndrome, um, even, the, even the studies that looked at aspirin, they basically talked about giving children multi-gram dosages per day and only in the, while in the course of a viral of an ongoing viral infection, which is presumably not the case, right? When you're going to vaccinate the child, you know, the child is, is usually not sick because if it is, most doctors will not vaccinate. Mm -hmm. So presumably when you're going to get the vaccines, the child shouldn't be having a viral episode, so it shouldn't be at risk of Ray syndrome. So you're not like giving, a tablet of aspirin. And you're not giving six or seven or eight tablets, which would be a, a couple grams, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. We're talking about one. So the child is much smaller. One tablet is enough. Actually, one tablet will probably be enough even for an adult, but just to make sure, I'll do a little more for an adult, two or three. Uh, but for a child, one tablet should be perfectly fine. I will still ask the doctor. And methylene blue is approved even, even in very young children, even in newborns, because in, in neonatal intensive care units, is used for resuscitation of both adults and children that go into shock. Mm. So they can inject it intravenously in hundreds of milligrams, even in a newborn, and it's considered perfectly safe. So taking only one or two milligrams orally should be nothing in terms of comparative risks. And it still helps tremendously with the increase of metabolism and reducing the risk of damage from the vaccines. Amazing. Georgie, where, where can a listener learn more about your work or, or contact you directly if, if they, we have, if it they on your, have it on your browser right there? I have a blog. Uh, with the address is heydu.me, H-A-I-D-U-T dot M-E. 
Um, I also post on the repeat forum, but I think at this point, the blog would be the primary. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I have an email address, H-A-I-D-U-T at gmail.com. And those are the two primary uh, methods of uh, getting in touch with me. That's awesome. Georgie, this has been amazing as it as, uh, seems par for the course now in our short time knowing each other. Uh, appreciate you having, uh, uh, spending the time with us. This has been great. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me again. All right. Take care. All right.